0: Hebrews chapter 13, as we come to the end of this profound sermon. While you're opening there, John wrote in 1 John 4:19, "We love because He first loved us." That's it, period. There would not be love in this world, on this earth if he did not first love us. We wouldn't understand the concept of love. If not for the fact that our God is love and loved us first. And it is the love of God that empowers us to love each other. God is love. And as we come to the end of this sermon, that's where the pastor lands. This soaring sermon concludes with the application of the love of God. And so we're just going to go through this final chapter. We're going to look at nine different principles of love that we'll draw out as we're studying verse by verse through this chapter. Let's dive right in. Verse 1 of chapter 13. Let love of the brethren continue. Let it continue, which means it's already in play. I like that. It's already in motion. You know, he's writing to a people that he assumes they already love each other. And so looking at us here tonight, he would say, I I assume you already love each other. Keep going. Let that love continue. Let it go on. It's brotherly love, Philadelphia love of the brethren brotherly love that he's using there that he that he references and and that's a good thing Philadelphia is good you know sometimes it can be downplayed because it's not agape but hey Philadelphia is good the love of the brethren love for one another in fellowship again it's not agape so it's not the unconditional love of God but it's it's more perhaps a human kind of love I think without God's love and without the example of His love and without His Spirit in us, Philadelphia is probably the best that we could achieve. And it's pretty good. It's pretty good. It's a good starting place for us to move into agape. And I want you to note that this is the first principle, and that is that love is transforming. Because Philadelphia wants to become agape. Philadelphia leads into becoming agape Philadelphia where we might be in and of ourselves desires more, wants more and along comes the agape love of God that unconditional love and we say, that's what I want that's what I want to be part of it's what I want to give honestly, selfishly, it's also what I want to receive I want to know that I am loved unconditionally that even if I mess it up someone's still going to love me see, that's God's love for us Philadelphia is transforming into agape. That's what we're taught in the scriptures. That's the love of the brethren moving forward. We continue in the love of the brethren, not to stay in the love of the brethren, but to move into the agape of the brethren, the unconditional love of the brethren. Peter understood this. Peter was trained in this. In fact, this was ingrained In Peter's mind. No, I'm not saying Peter is the writer of the Hebrew sermon, but think about him for an example for a moment. We've been in John 21 several times recently. We got to go there again. Just listen to this aspect of the story. You may recall the story. Peter's on the beach there in the Galilee. Jesus has breakfast ready for them when they come in from the from the fishing, the unsuccessful fishing until he says cast on the other side. And of course, they pull in 153 fish And they bring that ashore. They have breakfast with Jesus. And then he enters into that very famous dialogue with Peter. Listen to it again. When they had finished breakfast, John 21, 15, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And I've pointed out before, and you Bible students know, when Jesus says, do you love me, he uses the word agape. Do you unconditionally love me more than these? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. But Peter says, Phileo. Brotherly love. Jesus says, Do you unconditionally love me? Peter says, You know that I brotherly love you. And Jesus said to him, Tend my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you agape me? Do you unconditionally love me? And Peter said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I brotherly love you. He said to him, shepherd my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you brotherly love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you brotherly love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I brotherly love you. And Jesus said to him, Tend my sheep. There is so much in that discourse, in that conversation, so much that takes place there that Jesus is doing on a spiritual level, a personal level for Peter. But also on a very profound level for you and for me to see what Jesus is up to. The third time that Peter call, that Jesus calls out Peter, grieved Peter, the Bible tells us. Now, you might assume, well, it grieved Peter because it was a recriminating repetition. Jesus kept asking him, do you agape me? Then Peter kept saying, I can't quite get there. I love you with, with brotherly love, but clearly I don't unconditionally love you or I wouldn't have betrayed you. I wouldn't have denied you. Jesus calls it out again and again. And by the third time, some just think Peter's exasperated. He's frustrated. He's grieved because Jesus won't let it alone, keeps drawing this out. I don't think so. I think Peter was grieved because Jesus changed the word. And it shocked him. In fact, and this is just one pastor's opinion, but I think Jesus changing from agape to phileo, Philadelphia, that brotherly form of love, changing the word, shocked Peter's system like a defined (laughs) defibrillator. Suddenly it, it, it nailed his heart. And I know this for a fact because I know how it affected Peter the rest of his life. You can see it. You can hear about it. that This idea that, that while brotherly love was all Peter could muster there on the beach of the Galilee, Jesus was pulling him toward agape. All I've got is brotherly love. Agape, Peter. All I've got is brotherly love. Agape, Peter. All I've got is brotherly love. And Peter And Jesus the third time says, Okay, let's start right there. Brotherly love. Begin there. But in that moment, Jesus had already done something in Peter's heart. Something that would play out over Peter's life and ministry, his entire life and ministry. In the first letter Peter wrote, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22, he says, "...since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere Philadelphia, a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another agape from the heart." Right there, you know Peter got it. Hey, if you have brotherly love, you need to be transformed to unconditional love. I have no doubt that Peter remembered the moment on the beach with Jesus. And it uh, impacted him deeply. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 7, Peter said, In godliness, supply brotherly kindness. That is Philadelphia. And in brotherly kindness, in your Philadelphia, supply agape. He got it. It may have taken days, months, years after that moment with Jesus, but Peter finally figured out that love is transforming. Love must be transforming. Hey, it's great if we have brotherly love for one another. That's wonderful. I don't look down on that. Jesus doesn't look down on that, but He says from there, you're going to transform into an unconditional love. The more we... Philadelphia, the more we have brotherly love one for another, the more it will draw us into that unconditional love one for one, you know, one for another, and we'll look at each other and say, you know, I don't know why, but I don't just like you anymore, I actually love you. <laughs> what happens to you actually affects me in a way that it didn't before. It's a transforming love. Causing us to move up and out. You might look at it this way. Love wants us to move out of the city of Philadelphia and into the country of agape. That's where we're headed. The kingdom of God is the country of agape. Now, one way to transform and to become transformed by love is to love the outsider. And that's the second word we see in verse 2. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Philozenia. Philoxenia, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. Hospitality to strangers. Anytime you see hospitality in the scriptures, it's philoxenia. And that is, again, love to strangers. Love of the foreigner. Love of the outsider. So while love is transforming, the second principle is love is tending. That is love is tending to the outsider. Love tends to the foreigner. Love tends to the alien. Love tends to those who are not of us. Love always looks beyond these four walls. Our country's struggling with this right now. You know, the whole issue over DACA, border walls, it's become an incredibly divisive issue regarding Legal and illegal immigration. Who should be in this country? Who should not be in this country? Oh no, Rick, are you about to go liberal on us? Or some might be saying, are you going to go conservative on us? No, I'm going to go Jesus on you here. Because he says, regardless of where you stand in terms of your nationalistic uh, sympathies or feelings... I mean, hey, let me just be honest. I've got strong, personal, nationalistic feelings about the issue of illegal immigration. I get my back up. Man, especially when unlawful immigrants commit crimes against Americans, against citizens, that bothers me. When, When the law is violated by those who are supposed to be keeping the laws. That bothers me deeply. But here's the question we ought to be asking above all other questions, and I'm speaking to brothers and sisters in Christ. The question ought to be, what's the role of the church? What is the role of the church? How are we supposed to be to the illegal or the foreigner or the alien? You see, I'm, I'm a citizen of America, but I've got dual citizenship. I'm a citizen of another country, and as such, that citizenship calls me personally to a different standard. It calls me to philozenia, to love of the foreigner. We call this room that we're sitting in here a sanctuary, right? This is our sanctuary. No, it's an auditorium. <laughs> sanctuary from Sanctorium, I believe it is in, in the Latin, which has to do with a, a holy place or a place of holiness. And over time, you know, down through history, it, the church became a place where people could claim sanctuary. Where someone running from the law could run into the doors of the church. It was made famous by Dumas' uh, Hunchback of Notre Dame. Sanctuary! Get into the church. You can get your sanctuary. We still see that occasionally happen today. You know, sanctuary actually began with God a long time before that. The Lord was the one, as the people came into the land, who said, I want to set up sanctuary cities. Sanctuary cities. That makes me angry as an American. Well, hold on a second. The Lord said, Israel... Read it in Numbers chapter 35. I want you to set up six cities of refuge. See, 48 cities were given to the Levites. They weren't given their own plot of land. They were just given cities throughout the land of Israel so that as priests they could minister in the land. And of these 48 cities, six of them were called cities of refuge. Now, they weren't for the illegal, although Torah law calls for the Jewish people to care for the foreigner and to invite the illegal person among them or the outsider or the alien to come in and be among them. Torah law called for that. But the refuge cities, cities of refuge, were if you caused manslaughter, if you killed someone accidentally, you could flee to one of these cities of refuge and be protected there at least until the high priest passed away and then you would be set free. Cities of refuge. It was God's idea in the first place. So regardless of what we think about American immigration or what the policies ought to be, when it comes to the Christ followers concerned for and treatment of any outsider, we are citizens of the country of agape. Which means our love is not conditioned on someone's country of origin. Our love is conditioned on Christ, whose love compels us. Now, how that plays out, I haven't even yet figured out. We have not, as a fellowship, been called on to provide sanctuary or to to respond. You know, there are a lot of immigrants in the Skagit Valley, so since there are two bridges away, we haven't been as impacted. We may yet be, but the bottom line is love tends to the outsider. Love is transformative, changing me, causing me to go from brotherly love into agape, but as I am transforming, part of that transformation is loving people no matter who they are. By the way, loving the outsider means loving the non-Christian, the (laughs) non-believer. Loving them enough, not just family and friends. You know, see, this is something else that can happen in our flesh. We can get really angry when non-believing folk do things say things you know the freedom from religion foundation hate those guys well really ought to love those guys loving the outsider remember that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life now by the way as a cryptic caveat in this second verse he mentions that loving is, is showing hospitality to strangers, this, this idea of loving outsiders. But he says, note this, you might be accommodating angels. So you might want to be on the alert. Someone you don't know, you have no idea who they are, but as you show loving hospitality to them, they may actually be angelic. I mean, what if Abraham had turned away his angelic visitors? Back in Genesis 18... And it's a wonderful story, and, and note, note how Abraham responds here. Let me just read this to you. Since he was sitting in the tent of the, the door of his tent in the heat of the day, when he lifted up his eyes and looked. Behold, three men were standing opposite him. Note that number, three men. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them, and he bowed himself to the earth and said, My Lord, if now I have found favour in your sight, please do not pass your servant by. Please, let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. And I will bring a piece of bread that you may refresh yourselves. After that, you may go on since you have visited your servant. And they said, So do as you have said. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah and said, Quickly, prepare three measures of fine flour, knead it, and make bread cakes. Things moved a lot more slowly. (laughs) In the Middle East of those days, (laughs) someone drops in, I'm going to go bake some bread, I'll be right back. So he's got Sarah baking bread, and he also ran to the herd. And he took a tender and choice calf and gave it to the servant, and he hurried to prepare it. And Abraham Abraham took curds and milk and the calf which he had prepared and placed it before them. Oh, that's not even kosher. I just realized that. Curds—that's cheese, cheese, milk, and meat. You're not supposed to have that together based on Jewish law, but Abraham was pre-law, so he took this and placed it before them. He was standing by them under the tree as they ate. So you see this this burst of Abrahamic hospitality, and he didn't know who he was serving. Well, he called him Lord, yeah, but the word Lord is not Yahweh. It was just a term of, of you know honor and respect so here come these three men and and Abraham just sees it as his responsibility to show hospitality. That mentality is still exemplified in the Middle East today. You come into someone's tent, you are under their protection. They provide for you. They, they, They want to share what they have with you. And you see this especially among the Bedouins in Israel of today. But as it turns out, it wasn't just some angels that visited Abraham that day it was Jesus himself well how do you know that verse 22 of Genesis 18 says then the men two of them turned away from there and went towards Sodom we know later in Genesis 19 that they were angels that went down to Sodom while Abraham was still standing before Yahweh so God was there but Rick you said Jesus yeah because Jesus is always the human representation of God so what we have is what's called a Christophany, Jesus showing up, a pre-incarnate appearance of God on earth. It's remarkable that it was God who was served. It was God who was shown hospitality. And Jesus made the same kind of reference in Matthew 25. He said, hey, if you do, this, do it to the least of these brothers of mine, you've done it to me. So think that through. As you show love, we are called to love each other as we already have. We continue to do so and not neglect to show the same kind of love to the foreigner, to the outsider. Now, what the pastor continues to do is apply this godly agape as something that is transformative, especially of our natural tendencies, And the things that he pulls out in this chapter, the places that he calls us to show love, run against the grain of the flesh. Note this verse 3. Remember the prisoners. Hmm. Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them, and those who are ill-treated, since you yourselves also are in the body. Third principle. Love is thoughtful. Well, I don't mean just nice. I mean, love doesn't forget. Love is thoughtful. It remembers, man, when someone's locked up, when someone's in prison, when someone's incarcerated, love doesn't forget the person. It's easy to do that. You know, send away to prison, and we're done. We don't have to think about this person anymore. Now, in the context here, we're probably talking about someone who was in prison for the sake of the gospel. Remember Paul's experience? How many times was he thrown into prison? To the point where if you study through the book of Acts, you start to realize the church was getting a little tired of it. The church wasn't responding to Paul. Oh, the first time, Paul's in prison. Oh, we've got to show up, we got to protest this. But as Paul continued to get thrown into prison for the gospel, it almost seems as though he became an embarrassment, at least to some of the churches, Second Timothy chapter one, verse 15, Paul said, "You are aware of the fact that all who are in Asia turned away from me." Second Timothy 4:16, "At my first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me, may it not be counted against them." And so the pastor is probably referring to those who, like Paul, were imprisoned for the gospel. He wasn't the only one who was thrown into jail for preaching the truth or for standing for what was right. In fact, he wasn't the only one throughout church history. I still am waiting for the day when it's going to start happening around here and some of you are thrown into prison for standing up for the gospel. I may be absent that day. I mean, just for preaching truth. We may yet see it happen in this country. Remember the prisoners. By the way, you, you you could stretch that out very easily. You could apply that to people who are imprisoned in any way. Remember those who are in prison. Those who are captive, specifically of the enemy. Once again, thinking about the outsider, that is the non-Christian, the non-believer, remember the best way to consider someone who doesn't believe in Jesus is they are a captive of the enemy. They may not even know they're a captive. So love them as you would love anyone who has been held captive or taken prisoner by the enemy himself. Hey, we've all been prisoners at one time or another, have we not? I was a prisoner before coming to Jesus. Before He set me free. And captives of the enemy are always set free by Jesus and by faith in Him. He said, Isaiah 61, verse 1, "...the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord." And that's how Jesus kicked off His public ministry. So the pastor says, remember the prisoners. Verse 4. Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Another difficult area. Marriage. Why did God establish marriage in the first place? All the way back to Adam and Eve. Why did He give us that? Well, he gave it as a picture of Christ in the church. First and foremost. He also established it as, in my opinion, one of the primary places in this world where we learn to be unselfish. In marriage. Now, love number four, you might note this is trustworthy. Love is trustworthy. It is not tristworthy. And the Bible goes right to this. Marriage challenges our natural tendencies because it puts us under a vow of trust. And if you have ever had your trust in another person violated, then it's even more difficult to trust someone. Now, we may get married for ourselves, but we stay married for our spouse. We may get married for ourselves, but we stay married for our spouse. Now, it's interesting, the pastor contextualizes this form of love as specifically sexual love in and for the marriage bed. Listen to the verse one more time. Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled, and he lists two types of sexual sin. Fornicators and adulterers God will judge. So the marriage bed is defiled in one of two ways. Either in marriage, adultery, or before marriage fornication both defile the marriage bed and he says you want a love, you want a transforming love that moves from brotherly love on into agape then the marriage bed is not to be defiled, so for unmarried people listen don't live in such a way now that you defile your marriage bed then married people don't defile the marriage bed now The fact that the Bible addresses this issue so specifically is really significant. God knows what goes on. He knows the issues we face. He said through the apostle of 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 4, the wife, wives, hang on here, does not have authority over her own body. Wow, that sounds completely different than what we hear in American culture, doesn't it? My body, my right. Isn't that what we hear? Well, according to Scripture the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Men, he says, also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. And then he says, stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer, and come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you, because of your lack of self-control. So the the sexual love in a marriage is a vital part of the marriage. Sexual love solidifies a healthy marriage. So don't let the marriage bed be defiled. Sexual lust does two things. One, it subverts marriage. It defiles, as we see, the marriage bed. But it also spoils the temple of God. For those who say, I'm not married so I don't have to worry about it. Hey, If you are engaged in sexual lust, in what the Bible calls fornication, you are destroying the temple of God. You might as well be taking a hammer to the holy temple and smashing down the walls as Titus did in A.D. 70 or Nebuchadnezzar did in 586 B.C. That's the company we join when we defile the temple of God our very bodies. First Corinthians 6.18 says, Flee sexual immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral or the sexually immoral man sins against his own body. Do you not know your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Whom you have from God. And you are not your own. You've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Trustworthy love. But stay with this principle a little bit longer. Verse 5. He says, Make sure that your character is free from the love of money. Being content with what you have, for he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you, so that we may confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? We talked about this on Sunday, right? Five negatives that form one glorious positive. I will not, I cannot leave you, I will never, no, never forsake you. Now I'm not going to talk about this anymore tonight, I'm not going to repeat myself, but just note, and I think I mentioned it at one of the services on Sunday morning, note that the promise of God's profound faithfulness for us is set in the context of money. And that's interesting. Why? Why here? Why does here, why does God now choose to say, I will never desert you or ever forsake you? When talking about money, that seems like such a... uh, Let's talk about that somewhere else, God. How come we have to hear this with the context of money? He's just given another love word. There's Philadelphia. There's Philozenia. And now He uses the word aphilagouros. And afilaguros means not loving money. In fact, those opening words of verse five: "Your character is to be free from the love of money." King James translates that conversation without covetousness. You know, relationship is not connected to, or led by, or controlled by money. Money's the issue, and it has nothing to do with how much I have. It has everything to do with what my focus is. So listen. Sometimes we talk about money in the church and someone says, well, I, I got none anyway, so obviously that doesn't apply to me. It's just the rich people who need to hear this. No, it's everybody who needs to hear this. Because it has to do with our focus in life. Jesus said, Matthew 6.24, no one can serve two masters. He'll either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other You cannot serve God and wealth. Can't do it. Money is an unfaithful, adulterous mistress. You may love money, but money will never love you back. You can't serve God and money. Paul said in 1 Timothy 6:10, "The love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs." And it breaks my heart to tell you I have watched this happen. I've seen people who didn't have a lot of money get focused on making money and slowly walk away from faith. In fact, I've seen it happen multiple times. As a pastor now over several years, many years I've seen people who were faithful and showing up and loving Jesus. And yeah, this is all great. And then all of a sudden they get some kind of financial opportunity. Some kind of business. And, and, and man, you've got to put the time in to make the money back. You've got to make it work, you know. And it starts to take them away and you start to see them less and less. And the next thing you know, that's all they're doing. I'm sure that's never happened to any of you. Money is an adulterous lure that tries to draw us out. Be content with what you have, knowing that what you have, whether it's a lot or a little, is God's blessing to you. And that's why right here in the midst of saying, make sure your character is free from the love of money, he says, look, I'll never desert you. I am not going to forsake you. Yeah, but Lord, i got bills to pay. You don't think I know that? Jesus would say I mean, stop for a moment and think. If money's tight, do you think God is unaware of that? you think maybe it's just in, in your home that He's not aware of the bills and the, and, the, and the costs that you're facing right now? Of course He knows. The question is, what's He doing? Now, Now, some might ask, is there a way to develop this, this trustworthy relationship with God? I mean, boy, I, I want to be able to walk knowing He'll never desert me nor will He ever forsake me. I want to have that level of trust in You, God, especially when it comes to my money. How can I do that? Is there a way to do that? Yeah, there is actually. God provided a way. It's called the tithe. Oh, He had to go there again. (laughs) Listen, I'll just say this and we'll move on. Tithing, I promise you, will do more than just about anything else to unite godly trust with Christ-like contentment. You want to trust Jesus? Then trust Him with all that you have. When He says, seek first the kingdom and His righteousness and all these things will be added to you as well. Was that just a devotional thought for a spiritual moment? Was that just more of an emotional thing? He didn't really mean that. Or did Jesus mean what He said? I challenge you, go home and read Matthew chapter 6, listen to what Jesus says, and decide if you're willing to take him at his word. Because he says, I will never desert you. Make sure your character is free from the love of money, from the concern of wealth and riches and gaining more and getting, don't worry about that. I'm not saying don't get up and go to work in the morning, I'm not saying don't put away into savings, and I'm not saying don't invest in retirement. That's between you and Jesus. and You need to pray about those things. But don't let your fear of not having become greater than your faith in the One who gave it to you in the first place. Make sure your character is free from the love of money. Verse 7, And remember those who led you, who spoke the Word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate Their faith, number five in our list, love tracks. That is, love tracks those who go on ahead. I think the most important thing anyone can understand who desires to lead people, especially toward Jesus, is the best way to do it is to just fix your eyes on Jesus. That as you go forward following Him, there will be people who see you following and will follow because they see you following Him. And that's the critical thing here. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11, be imitators of me. But he doesn't put the period there. He then goes on and says, just as I also am of Christ. That is, if you see me, Paul would say, following Jesus, follow me. If I veer off to the left or to the right in my own direction, follow Jesus. And that is an absolute key in church leadership. Do not follow church leaders who are not following Jesus. But if they're following Jesus, yeah, follow them. Do what they're doing. Imitate their faith, their behavior. In fact, here in verse 7, when he says, Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith, result is end. It's a word that's applied to death. Consider the life that they have lived. Look at their longevity. Look at how they have followed Jesus and do that. Imitate that. Paul, or The the Hebrew writer says in Hebrews 6.11, We desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end so you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Imitate those who go before you. We all are called to do that. I could give you a list of men that I have imitated in my life because I have seen them follow Jesus. There are names on that list some of you would know. There are other names on that list you've never heard of. But people who had a dramatic impact on my life and my faith because they were following after Jesus. Imitate them. Skip ahead and look at verse 17. He says, Obey your leaders and submit for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this will be unprofitable for you. The imitation of leaders who follow after Christ, he even takes a step further. He says, don't just imitate them. Obey them. Whoa, whoa, Rick, where are you going with this? I'm not asking you to obey me. I don't see it as my job to tell you what to do, unless I'm speaking the Word of God. And you might note that back in verse 7, he says, remember those who led you, who spoke the Word of God to you. So what I tell you of the Word of God, that you yourselves test and read and know to be, yes, this is God's Word, do that. Obey that. Because in essence, you're not really obeying me, you're obeying the Word of God. What he's calling for here in this obedience, and this following your leaders within a church setting, this is getting more difficult. Because our culture more and more is rejecting leadership. And we see it happening in the church all the time. What happens is people say, I don't like the direction you're taking this church, I'm out of here. And they go to the church down the road because there happens to be one. Oh, for the days when there was only one church per town... You don't like the church? Go to Ephesus. (laughs) You want to travel? When there wasn't the option that we have to up and take our baggage with us. Let me encourage you. Anything ever happens here at the bridge that makes you want to leave, at least do me and yourself the favor of sitting down and resolving it before you go anywhere so that we can love each other and if you then still feel led by the Lord to go to another place let us send you out with a blessing rather than with tension you know that old church thing you all have felt that don't you hate that and now I can't talk to those people anymore well they're still your brothers and sisters and I have a feeling God's going to stick us all in the same room in heaven <laughs> and when you're all ready to come out come see me the games we play, man, just, just imitate those who are imitating Jesus. Don't be afraid to obey your leaders if, in fact, they themselves are obeying Jesus. And if they are those who follow the good shepherd, if they shepherd like the shepherd, man, that's all the better. I, I read this. I thought this was really cool. We were in the Diaspora Museum in Tel Aviv several years ago. And Cheryl and I were just kind of walking along the walls and we're looking at the artifacts and the different things there. And there was a a quote up on the wall by Rabbi Israel Salanter. And this rabbi said the following. He said, A rabbi whose community does not disagree with him is not really a rabbi. That was good for me to hear. That people can disagree. That you can be in fellowship and community with people who disagree with you and are wrong. You can still love them. But the, the quote goes on. It says, A rabbi whose community does not disagree with him is not really a rabbi. And a rabbi who fears his community is not really a man. And I got that point. That we walk in the truth of the Word of God. That we follow after Jesus. And by the way, you might jot these down. Three, three uh, what we call the ABCs of church authority. Real simple stuff here. Number one, accountability. Why should I obey the leaders of my church fellowship? So that you are accountable to other believers. And by the way, so that they are accountable to you. Our accountability runs both directions. Among all of us, our accountability is to each other and for each other as believers. Be accountable for the leaders, that is, their conduct. And be accountable to the leaders, that is, your conduct. So accountability. Secondly, Bible. Bible. Be sure you're being accountable to those who are speaking the Word of God to you and not just the philosophies of men. There are far too many churches out there that are teaching the philosophies of men. Make sure you are always connected in a place where the Word of God is being taught and spoken. Because our accountability is to each other, our accountability is also to the Word. It's how we know of the righteousness of God and we know who it is we're following. Man, if they're not speaking the Word... Be careful. <laughs> Accountability, Bible, and see, Christ. Christ. Because His authority is authority. You know, if, if I'm not raptured out of here, I'm gonna die. Someday. I mean, not today. Not planning. But I am going to die. I'll be gone. I'll be history. If the rapture hasn't happened, prayerfully, This church will continue. Someone else will take the pulpit and preach and teach. Teaching the Word, praise the Lord. But you know what? Pastors come and go. Leaders come and go. Shepherds come and go. Brothers and sisters come and go. Even those of the great hall of faith all came and went. But verse 8 tells us Jesus Christ is the same. Yes, it is. This powerful verse that we have been repeating all through this sermon speaks to the eternality of Jesus. Again, this is not just one of those little catchphrases. It speaks of His everlasting and divine nature. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Micah the prophet, chapter 5, verse 2 says, His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Today, in fact, just this evening... David was sitting there eating dinner. And uh, I made a comment about Jesus creating the world. And he goes, Dad, Jesus didn't create the world. Okay. What do you mean, son? He just walked right into it. Well, the world was created before Jesus was born. I said, okay. so, So in the Gospel of John, and I happen to know David has read the first chapter, I said, when it says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, who's the Word? And he goes, Jesus. I said, right. So it also says that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and all things were created through Him and for Him, and nothing that has been created was created without Him. The Word. Who's the Word? Jesus. Who created the world? The Word. (laughs) He is from days of eternity. And then I said this to David, and he's figuring this out, and I can see the light going on in his little brain. And and I said, and David, Jesus was born in the flesh, but He has always been. He has always existed. I said, you haven't always existed. You know, you were like, and, and, and you were forming in your mother's womb. And that was when you began. Jesus didn't have a beginning. And David was like, Whoa! (laughs) Micah said it from days of eternity. But Psalm 102, verse 27, which is quoted in Hebrews 1.11, also says, You are the same, and your years will not come to an end. There are no bookends on the life of Jesus Christ. The same yesterday, today, and forever has always been, will always be. No human leadership, no human authority lasts. All of the authority that we are under eventually goes away. Look at our presidents. If you don't like the president, in a few years, vote for the next one. And if you lose that vote, it will only be four more years and he's going to be replaced. Human leadership always dies away. Again, think of the heroes of the great hall of faith. Hebrews 11.13 says, all these died in faith. But Jesus remains the same he's there in your past yours personally he was there that's a comforting thought he is here in your present which means right now whatever's going on whatever you're facing he's here and he will be there in your tomorrow that which you are uncertain of and how am I going to get through and what's that going to look like and, and oh no and we start to fret and worry and stress about the future he, he's already there Yesterday, today, and forever. So His love is transforming us. It's it's a love that tends to the outsider. It's a love that is thoughtful even of those who are in prison. It's trustworthy as in a marriage. It's tracking as in those who lead, who follow after Jesus. And number six, love is truth. Verse 9. Do not be carried away by varied and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, through which those who were so occupied were not benefited. Now this is about as specific as the pastor gets in the whole entire sermon with some of the Jewish traditions and lures that may have been drawing these Hebrew Christians back into the old law. Even today, these Jewish dietary laws, I mean no offense by this, but are almost can be comical because of how they are carried out. I mentioned that that Abraham served curds and milk and meat to his guests. Served milk and meat to the Lord Himself. You can't do that today. Or you get in big trouble for trying to do that today. Did, Did you hear the story when Cheryl and I were first in Israel? and I know I've shared it before where she wanted to get a bagel and cream cheese and there was a little shop there and I wanted to get a shawarma which is like a meat sandwich and it was a little shop there so I went and got my shawarma and she got her bagel and cream cheese and we sat together at the same table and the owner of one of the shops came running out no, 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 no no, you can't eat at the same table why? cheese and meat must not mix you have got to be kidding me. I mean, that was how strict it was. Those dietary laws are still in effect in the land of Israel today. You're not supposed to share the table. You're not even supposed to have it at the same meal. Period. Breakfast, cheese and milk and dairy products all over the place. Dinner, there's meat. And you start to realize after the second or third day, wait a minute, there's no sausage at breakfast. There's no bacon. Where's my bacon? Dinner. So you go to dinner. There's your meat. And where's the butter? I need the butter for my roll. So what my wife does is she takes little pats of butter from breakfast and puts them in her purse so she can use them at dinner time. <laughs> if you ever hear international incidents splash across the screen, this is Cheryl in Israel. Jewish dietary laws are so seriously observed, even among secular Israelis today in the land, you got to be kosher. And it was an issue ongoing in the early church. And Paul addressed it. Romans 14.1 Now except the one who is weak in faith, not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions, one person has faith that he may eat all things. But he who is weak, note that, he who is weak eats vegetables only. I'm sorry Paul. The one who eats... (laughs) The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. And the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. And the issue was meat sacrificed to idols. That was the vegetarianism that was going on. It's like, man, if we just eat vegetables, we don't have to worry about if this meat was formerly sacrificed to an idol or not. So we'll just eat vegetables. And and Paul's saying, oh, you guys, you're completely missing grace. You're missing grace. Note that he says... It is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods. This was one of the biggest false teachings on the table of the early church because it denied the grace of God. Because the kind of food you ate... I I was kidding with, with Paul, he's actually very healthy, a lot healthier than I am. But the kind of food you eat was not the issue. You are not saved, you are not clean, you are not holy by what you eat. You're made holy by one thing and one thing alone, and that is the grace of God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Grace is the issue. Man, talk about feeding the flesh. And this was a big battle. And I'm all for being healthy. I really am. But Romans 4.17, Paul put the best cap on this. He said, the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Verse 10, so he says, We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. Whoa. What does that mean exactly? Okay, you got to put on your yarmulkes now, your thinking caps, alright? Typically, the good meat of Jewish sacrifice in the temple, that, that lean meat, not the fatty portions, but the good lean meat was given either to the priests or to the offerer. In fact, in the thank offering, it was kind of a divine barbecue. You know, you could come and you could bring your offering and it would be offered up and then the meat would be given back to you and you cook it up right there and you eat it right there in Jerusalem, in the temple courts, kind of having barbecue with God. And so you actually got to eat the good part of the meat with this exception. On Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement, None of the meat was ever eaten. In fact, Leviticus 16.27 says, The bull of the sin offering and the goat of the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place, he shall be taken outside the camp, and they shall burn their hides, their flesh, and their refuse in the fire. The offering for Yom Kippur, the offering that represented the atonement of the sins of the people of Israel, that singular offering was to be completely consumed on the fiery altar of sacrifice. It was never to be eaten, not even by the holiest of priests. What he's saying in verse 10 is those who cling to the old tabernacle, those who cling to the old law, cannot feast at the altar of Calvary. The altar of Calvary? Jesus said in John 6.54, He who eats My flesh and drinks My blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For My flesh is true food, and My blood is true drink, and he who eats My flesh and drinks My blood abides in Me and I in him. But man, if you are serving at the altar, if you are serving in the old tabernacle, you can't eat at the new altar. If you're going back, and you're focused on these legalistic tendencies... You are not feeding on the flesh and blood of Jesus, which produces grace. Grace. For the bodies, verse 11, of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Leviticus 16.27 Therefore, verse 12, Jesus also, that He might sanctify the people through His own blood, suffered outside the gate... So let us go out to Him, outside the camp, bearing His reproach. For here we do not have a lasting city. We are seeking the city which is to come. Number seven in the principles, love tabernacles with Jesus. Love doesn't go back to the old law, the old ways, the old tabernacle. We tabernacle with Jesus Himself. We dwell with Him. We don't settle in and settle down into this world. We continue to walk with Jesus in agape love that calls us to go the way of Jesus. Which is what way? North. Listen, the way that follows Jesus is north. North. What do you mean north? The burnt offering was always slaughtered north of the camp of Israel. As commanded in Torah law, Leviticus chapter 1, verse 11, He shall slay it on the side of the altar northward before the Lord. Guess where Golgotha was compared to the temple? North. Golgotha was to the north. Golgotha also was beyond the city walls, out the Damascus gate, to the north of the city of Jerusalem, just as it was with the tabernacle and the offering of the Day of Atonement. The entire offering was was given north was burned up north of the camp, so Jesus was sacrificed at Calvary north of the city, beyond the city gate, on the outside, which is wonderful because it reminds me of the love for outsiders that Jesus has for us. He was sacrificed on the outside. Outside of the gate. Verse 13 again tells us, let us go out to Him, outside the camp, bearing His reproach. Bearing His reproach? Hey, Jesus said in Matthew 10.38, He who does not take His cross and follow after Me is not worthy of Me. We bear His reproach. Matthew 16.24, If anyone wishes to come after Me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow Me. That is outside the camp. Outside the temple gates. Away from religion and ritual and self-righteousness and all of those humanistic tendencies where we think we can earn our way in. No, get away from that. Go out of the camp. And join Jesus and bear His reproach, which is the cross of Calvary, which bought us our grace. Again, grace. Verse 15. Through Him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is the fruit of lips, to give thanks to His name. And do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. In direct contrast to all the sacrifices of Israel, He now says, let me tell you what sacrifices God's looking for. Worship. The sacrifice of praise. Thanksgiving, the sacrifice of a heart that recognizes where all your provision comes from. And sharing and doing good things. A life that is sacrificed on behalf of others. Number eight, if you're keeping up with all of this, love is transcendent. Love is transcendent. That is, and note this, he uses the word continually, continually, continually. Continually. That's faithfulness. And it struck me as I read this, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise. Let me ask you a question, Rachel. Are there ever, Is there ever a Sunday or a Wednesday you don't feel like leading us all in worship? Be honest, this is for posterity. You ever just not feel like it? Okay. You may be shocked to hear this. Rachel doesn't like leading you in worship. I'm kidding. But you know, we were talking about this earlier today. There are times where I get all the way up here, sit down, hit the button on my notes, open up my Bible, and in my heart, I don't want to teach. I just... I don't feel... Now, tonight I feel. I'm fine. But... (laughs) There are times where I just don't feel like it. What do I do? You know what? I've had a bad day. I'm just going out. And invariably, invariably, the teachings that at least affect me more than any other by the end of the evening are the ones on the evenings and the mornings when I didn't want to teach at all. What I'm telling you is this. It is not feelings to which we are called. When he says, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, the fruit of lips that give thanks to His name, you know what? Sometimes I don't feel like thanking God. Really? The kind of week I've had? What He's allowed to happen in my life? What should I be thanking Him for anyway? Let us continually offer a sacrifice of praise. Praising Him always. Thanking Him nonstop, And, ooh... Sharing and doing good. Well, sometimes I don't want to share. My dad had this thing. We would buy chocolate donuts and they would sit in the cupboard, and and my brother and I just chowed them, you know. And my dad loved them. We knew he loved them. And there would be eight, and there were three of us, so we figured two each, plus one extra for Ron and one extra for me. Ron and I would eat ours within the first day, so there would be at least two left. And I would always go to my dad and say, dad, I want a donut really bad. Can I, can I have one of your donuts? And my dad would say, yeah, go ahead. And I'd get it out of the box and I would put it on the napkin. I'd sit down at the table and pour my glass of milk and I would take my first bite and my dad would just go, hmm. <laughs> <laughs> single time I mean this has now become a Crawford family tradition now I do the same with my kids yeah David you can have my donut and he takes a bite and I go (laughs) sometimes I don't want to share I don't want to do good I don't feel like I confess there are times I don't feel like worshiping and maybe you've never felt that maybe you are just spot-on super Christian all the time well I'm not you know what it has nothing to do with the feels. It does not matter how I feel. how you that, that makes no difference. There are times in my marriage where I just don't feel like serving my wife. What am I going to do? Faithfulness is not based on feelings. We live in a culture that tells you every single day that's all that matters is how you feel. And if you don't feel good in the relationship or in the position you're in or in the thing that you're doing, if you don't feel it, man, get out. That is not Jesus. That is not grace. Grace has nothing to do with how we feel. Faithfulness. This is what we're called to. Think about this. Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 4 verse 2. He said, preach the word, be ready in season and what? Out of season. out of season. What does that mean? Well, in season is when you're harvesting and the fruit is fresh and it's coming off the tree and everything's good. Out of season it's winter time. It's dead. Nothing's happening. And Paul says, you need to be ready to be productive Regardless of the season. To produce the fruit of the gospel, whether you feel like it or not. Whether you're hopped up on spiritual fervor or it's just another day of the life, it makes no difference to the faithful heart. And that's why this is called a sacrifice of praise. You praise regardless of how you feel. You thank God regardless of what's going on. You do good. You share. Because with such sacrifices, God is pleased. And by the way, Isaiah the prophet said, Isaiah fifty-seven eighteen, I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and to his mourners, creating the praise of lips. Peace. Peace to him who is far and to him who is near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. Verse 18, so the pastor then says, pray for us, for we are sure that we have a good conscience desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things, and I urge you all the more to do this so that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now we don't know the pastor's identity yet, but what we do know as he's calling for prayer is that he was in the thick of it, and I like that. I like the fact that we get a sense from the the pastor of this letter that he's probably not Paul because he doesn't associate himself. He doesn't say he is. He doesn't name himself as Paul does in all his letters. He says several things that we noted at the beginning of the letter that indicate this is probably not Paul. But whether or not he is Paul is beside the point. He was certainly around the people of Paul and he was certainly busy carrying on the work, pray for us. That we can conduct ourselves honorably. We want to be restored to you all the sooner, he says. There were so many people in the first century that were in the thick of the gospel, that were bringing the message of the gospel, carrying it then, and there are still those who carry it now, the honorable work of the gospel to the world. And he says in verse 20, Now the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, Jesus our Lord equip you in every good thing to do His will working in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ to whom be the glory forever and ever Amen the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep I think we have our Easter Sunday text right there and I think we'll come back and look at it on April 1st And as I said on Sunday, you'd be a fool not to be here. But note this. Think about this. How do we love with all these principles set before us? We've gone through eight of them. There's just one last principle. All these principles of love. Man, if I could jot them down, maybe memorize them, and try to work them out in our lives, and if you do that, you've just gone right back to the old temple. Really, these principles will happen naturally if you are walking supernaturally. What do you mean? Note this. There is only one way to honestly live out godly agape, to be transformed from brotherly to agape love, and that is, note this, it's right in the middle of verse 21, through Jesus Christ. Through Jesus Christ. That's principle number nine, and it's the overarching principle of all love is through Jesus Christ. Also in verse 21, note this, it's equipped in every good thing to do His will, working in us that which is is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory. It's His will, it's His sight, it's His glory. Amen. And that concludes the sermon. In fact, verse 21 is the end of the sermon. When He says, Amen, He has just finished His preaching. He has finished His teaching letter. He ends it right here. The beautiful, profound sermon to the Hebrew Christians is finished. It's complete. He began with Christ the Son. He ends here in verse 20 with Christ the Shepherd. He rounds it out perfectly. And then, like all pastors do, he tacks on some closing remarks. Verse 22. But I urge you, brethren, bear with this word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly, 13 chapters later. I like this guy. I urge you, brethren, bear with this word of exhortation. Shouldn't he have said that in chapter 1? Get your coffee and get comfy because we're going to be here for a while bear with this, hang in, I'm, you know, I've got this look. It's not what he's getting at. What he is saying now at the end of the sermon is all that I've taught you, all that is here, all that we have studied together and the Spirit has, has brought to our hearts, hold it in. Lift it up. Bear it out. Don't be hearers of the Word only. Be doers of this Word. Bear with this comforting teaching. Carry it with you. Take it with you. I would encourage you that though we are finishing it up tonight, that you don't finish it up. In fact, your challenge, your homework, if you will, for this next week, read through Hebrews. Go back to chapter 1. Read through chapter 13. Read it through. Bear with it. Hang on to it just a little bit longer and prove yourselves to be doers not just hearers of the word verse 23 he says take notice that our brother Timothy has been released it's the only time in all the New Testament that we see that Timothy was in prison if he's being released with whom if he comes soon I will see you so you may wonder well if he's talking about Timothy could this be Paul well Timothy did have other friends Again, this pastor never claims to be Paul, but he's identified with Paul's network and Paul's people. He's connected. He's involved. He's engaged in the sharing of the Gospel. And to me, that further validates the divine timing and inspiration of the sermon to the Hebrews. Verse 24. Greet all of your leaders and all the saints or the holy ones. Those from Italy greet you. Grace. Grace be with you all. Grace be with you all. Grace is only possible because, say it with me one more time, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this sermon. We thank You for this marvelous teaching letter. We ask now, Lord, that just as the pastor has, has brought the application of love forward, Has challenged us in those areas of our lives, Father, that that it's hard to love sometimes. It's hard to love the prisoner, Lord. It's hard to love the stranger. Sometimes it's hard to love in marriage. It's hard to love when I've got money calling to me. It's hard to love my leaders. (laughs) It's not hard to love when we're not worried about how it feels. And so I pray for faithfulness. I pray that You'll take the words of of this teaching and by Your Spirit, produce in us faithfulness in season and out of season. Faithfulness, Father, at all times. Simply trusting in You because You have saved us by Your grace. We thank You for the supremacy of Jesus that has been preached throughout this marvelous letter. And we bow before You, Lord Jesus, We pray honor and glory to Your name, the same yesterday, today, and forever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.